The spiral of violence is worsening in Israel and the Palestinian territories. Late last week, Israeli soldiers killed nine Palestinians, injured another 20 in the occupied West Bank town of Jenin. Israel's government says it was an anti-terrorist raid. One victim was an elderly woman bystander. A day later, a Palestinian gunman shot seven Jewish worshippers outside a synagogue. So is this the start of a third intifada? Dr Eyal Meiruz is with the Centre for Peace and Conflict Studies at the University of Sydney. The seeds have been planted for a long time, I think since the, even the days of the last government. The uh, reality on the ground during the uh, government of Naftali Bennett, which was a mix of right-wing, left-wing, centre and even Palestinians, was that more Palestinians were killed in the West Bank than in the previous decade and a half. So the seeds have already been planted beforehand. What I think is uh, taking place now is an escalation in Israel of attacks against Jews, not as much an escalation of what is taking place in the, against Palestinians in the West Bank. I see that Benjamin Netanyahu, the Prime Minister, wants more Israelis. I'm not sure if he only means Jewish Israelis to have access to guns. What's that going to mean? Well, this is a crazy idea, obviously, because already Israelis carry probably more guns than any other country in the world. But most guns are centered, if you look at a map of where most guns per pop, as percentage of the population are being stored or carried, you're seeing the settlement or the settlements, and these are the most radical extremists. So calling on them to carry more guns is pretty much a free license to use them and use them against the law. And this is a call for, again, an escalation and uh, violence uh, breaking out. Mm. To what extent are individuals who are now in positions of great power in Benjamin Netanyahu's government responsible for some of the escalation? Um, I mean, who's this fellow Itamir Ben-Gavir? He's the National Security Minister. What sort of language does he use? There's a I guess, a group of radical elements in Netanyahu's government that he agreed to bring into power in return for trying to escape a jail sentence on charges of corruptions that he's currently facing. But these radical elements are certainly a great risk, I would say, both to Jews and Palestinians. And Itamar Ben-Gvir was given the extreme power of, of a national security minister that everyone is fearing he will use in ways that will certainly contribute to an escalation and possibly even to a third intifada. Ial, didn't he, if my reading is correct, have on his wall until a couple of years ago a rather large portrait of Barak Goldstein, who was the um, Jewish terrorist who murdered 29 Palestinians and I think injured another 100 Palestinians in a, in a mosque attack back in the 90s? Yes, he's trying to kind of uh, reinvent himself. He used to be the target of the Israeli security services as a potential troublemaker, and he was indicted for all kinds of incitement to violence and so on. And now the same person was a target of the security forces and the police is heading these same security forces and the police. Whose interests would a third intifada serve? Because... If we think of the first intifada back in the late 80s, the second in the early 2000s, they didn't achieve a Palestinian state. So whose interests would it serve? I think this is a very important and difficult to answer question because 
On one hand, you see radicals on both sides of the aisle or the camps having or seeing their interest in setting the country aflame, which is, again, an important trigger, a potential trigger for, for a third intifada. If you look on the Jewish side, then most people have learned to live with you know, the reality of the status quo. Yes, there are uh, cycles of terrorist attacks, periodic rocket firing from Gaza. But what other better alternatives are there for us? But the real issue is that on the Palestinian side, if you are looking closely, you see a very different picture. Because what we see is an increasing sense of hopelessness. And frankly, it is one that is not difficult to understand. Because if you take a toll, then they are living under an ongoing occupation. There are no prospects in the near or even mid-term future for a Palestinian state. There is a continued expansion of the Jewish settlements, establishing facts on the ground. There's now, with the new government, increasing fear of annexation of the West Bank. And there's increasing or worsening incidents of humiliation, human rights that they've been subjected to, mainly by the settlers, sometimes by the army. And finally, there is a sense of abandonment by the Arab world that may lead the majority of the population, Palestinian population in the West Bank, who were so far fearing of supporting a third intifada because of the dire consequences, economic consequences and security consequences may lead them to the desperate act of supporting you know, such an uprising. The Palestinians have uh, said that they might withdraw security and intelligence cooperation with the Israelis. Um, a long time ago, you were an intelligence uh, um, officer in Israel. What would it mean if the Palestinians actually went through with that promise and withdrew all intelligence and security cooperation? This has uh, happened before more than once. The PA, the Palestinian Authority, was created in 1994 as a transition to uh, Palestinian states and has stayed since. It is an authority that doesn't enjoy the support of most of the population in the West Bank. And part of the reason for that it, is that it is, has been cooperating on security issue with the Israeli army and Israeli security forces and in fact have taken upon themselves much of the work that before that the Israeli army had to do. So certainly Israel is very much dependent on security cooperation over time, but from what I'm hearing from some sources, this withholding of security cooperation has already been done, but at a lower level, that there is still some cooperation because Palestinian Authority is still dependent on Israel to a large extent. Whether that will completely fall apart, whether the Palestinian Authority will fall apart, that will certainly be a major blow and will contribute to an escalation of violence. Yeah. What if the Palestinians went even one further and said, look, if you want to run the West Bank, because you know previous coalition agreements have involved um, serious talk of actually formally annexing the West Bank, if the Palestinians said, fine, you take over this place, you run the schools, you run the hospitals, we will relinquish the Palestinian Authority, but give us the vote. Give us the vote. Make us citizens of Israel with all the same political rights. What would the response be in Israel to that? Now you're kind of transitioning to the question of one state solution versus two state solution, which is a very important one, because from my perspective, my understanding is that this situation today with the new Israeli government and the escalation has dealt a death blow to the one-state solution. Because 
the one state solution was never really, you know, a likely reality because Israelis, as you kind of alluded to, have never agreed and will never agree to giving six million or, or at least four million Palestinians voting rights in a dual nationality country. And so the reason why a lot of Palestinians and a lot of left wing Israelis support the idea of one state solution is because it will kind of tear off the mask of the Israeli kind of argument that we want a state that is both democratic and Jewish, because I don't see any possibility of allowing citizenship to the Palestinians, and therefore we are only left with a two-state solution. What about just finally, Eyal, another scenario uh, that I read about actually in the Jerusalem Post last year, and that is this notion of um, Yerida, which is the opposite of Aliyah, Yerida being the outward migration of Jews from Israel. What would happen if, um, I don't know, the 15, 20, 25% of Israeli Jews who said, look, we don't want to buy into any sort of ethno-nationalism, we can, as post-World War II, history shows, build very good lives in places like Australia, Canada, the United States. What if they just said, we want to leave en masse? What would that do to Israel? I think this question of leaving Israel has been uh, on the table a number of times in the past. Each time there was a, a difficult situation, some have left. And it's certainly today in an unprecedented scale, at least the considerations because of the new government being dominated by religious, I'd say a lot of religious AMPs and Jews that are threatening to undermine the status quo between religious Jews and, and secular Jews. So there is a, a great fear among the secular Jews in Israel of an overrun. And that is the case usually leads to consideration of leaving the country. But I don't think too many Israelis are in a position to, in terms of their not having foreign their nationalities or, or their ability to immigrate or leaving their families or leaving their jobs to do that. So there will be a wave of Yerida, as you say, immigration, but I don't think it will demographically make any change to the realities. What might happen is what they call a brain drain, where a lot or relatively high number of very smart people leaving, which will obviously undermine the economy. Dr. Eyal Mehruz, he is a senior lecturer in peace and conflict studies at the University of Sydney and an expert in the Middle East. Thank you for coming back to the Religion and Ethics Report, Eyal. Thank you for inviting me. And you're with Andrew West on RN and the ABC Listen app. Getting in touch with ABC RN is easy. Join the conversation live using the ABC Listen app's call and text features.